I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 20th. I'm Kevin Farrell, in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health experts warn COVID isn't over as the B5 subvariant of the coronavirus leads to elevated transmission. Plus, the role a new coastal establishment plays in rehabilitating an endangered species of sea turtle. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The newest Omicron variant of COVID-19 is leading to a period of sustained high transmission in many Mississippi counties. Experts say the B5 subvariant is so highly infectious that those who've already had the virus, immunizations and boosters are still at great risk of contracting it. And while the strain may present milder short-term cases, long COVID is still a concern. Dr. Bageshri Navahala is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She shares the latest on the coronavirus pandemic with our Michael Guidry. COVID is still here. It has not gone anywhere. We are still experiencing transmission of cases resulting in high case numbers. We kind of started to see the Omicron wave late November, early December, and then we have gone through so many of these sub-variants, BA1, BA2, and right now BA5. And what we are seeing is the BA5 variant is uh, really the most transmissible variant we have seen so far. Uh, It is known to uh, kind of escape uh, immune response. So basically, if you are Uh, If you had infection before uh, last year, uh, the year before, two infections, three infections, you can still, if you're exposed, you can still get uh, this BA5 uh, Omicron infection uh, upon exposure. We are also seeing uh, that the infections are thankfully uh, still kind of mild. So uh, patients are uh, not developing severe infection requiring oxygenation. Uh, We are thankfully seeing less of that in our hospitalized patients. 
uh, we are seeing less deaths occurring as well uh, thankfully as compared to previous variants uh, though this we call this as a mild variant uh, anyone who has gotten exposed and got infection with this omicron will tell you that it's not worth having this infection they have had uh, like flu like symptoms but severe fatigue body aches losing time from work staying at home not able to do daily activities and also the risk of long covid infection uh, in the sense those lasting symptoms for weeks to months after having covid infection has been seen in some of these cases so even though uh, we are saying that this infection has really not caused lot of uh, severe disease it's still causing lot of uh, affecting the quality of life of many people you know anecdotally it always seems as as we hear about these variants and they being you know quote unquote mild or or less severe than you know the the initial wave uh the idea is well I'll just take my chances but what are we still learning about long covid that that should kind of act as maybe a deterrent uh and and cause people to 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 consider their actions uh and their their exposure to transmission right so that's a good point uh, you bring up because uh that's the same response i have heard from many people saying that um oh, it's just like another flu like illness i i'll just go ahead and get uh infected that's fine with me uh, but what we know so far about long covid and what what we are still learning is one it doesn't care if you had mild infection moderate infection or severe infection we are seeing patients getting long covid irrespective of severity of infection so somebody might have had very mild infection might have gotten over it within few days didn't even require hospitalization and they have suffered from long covid for weeks to up to 6 months to 1 year i have seen patients who have extremely healthy who exercise like three times a week who have been not able to even get up and walk for a good amount of time or for a 20 minutes or half an hour without getting short of breath and fatigue so it absolutely does decrease your quality of life as compared to before and that's the one of the main reasons we uh, have been advising people that you need to follow the precautions even though mild infection uh, you could get mild infection you do not know if you can if you are at risk and you could develop long covid so that is one of the reasons why we have we, are, we need to continue to follow precautions we need to still avoid this getting this infection as much as possible you mentioned in and kind of this example you know prolonged fatigue that could last weeks and months uh, what are some of the other you know long term effects of of covid that have been clinically observed and uh, have become i guess more commonplace than others right so it long covid uh, has literally affected uh, can affect literally any organ system head to toe we have seen patients so fatigue has been very common symptom which has been reported uh, a lot of patients have reported shortness of breath uh, like just while sitting or even walking short distances in their home 
patients have reported they have developed some anxiety they have developed brain fog not able to think clearly not able to sleep at night uh, they have uh, had various other symptoms like they could have some chest pain they could de- develop diarrhea or constipation or not able to kind of loss of appetite so they are not eating well so they are not having much energy to go around uh, it those have been really common but there are like hundreds of different symptoms which uh, patients have reported from all across the world which have been associated with long covid Dr. Bageshri Navakale is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in part 2 of her conversation with Michael Gidry there is no way that we can say what's going to happen in the future there is a possibility there will be more mutations there will be newer variants which could be more transmissible that's tomorrow still to come rehabilitating endangered sea turtles this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. The Mississippi Abortion Clinic at the center of the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade is ending its challenge against that state's 2007 trigger law banning most abortions. Attorneys for the clinic twice filed a lawsuit in an attempt to block the state from enforcing the law. Jackson Women's Health Organization dropped its litigation a day after clinic owner Diane Dursis told the Associated Press that she sold the facility and had no intention to reopen it even if a state court allowed her to do so. For Dursus, the focus shifts to La Cruces, New Mexico, where she's uh, opening Pink House West. But the new clinic near the Texas border could face some of the same resistance the old one encountered in Jackson. Greetings from Mississippi. In the name of the Lord, bless you. Do not despair. That's Choose Life Mississippi President Terry Herring speaking at a rally in Las Cruces yesterday. Her appearance was part of a larger demonstration the Southwest Coalition for Life called, quote, a welcome party. Herring recounted her efforts to challenge Supreme Court precedent. The Supreme Court had spoken, they said. There is nothing you can do, they said. It is a woman's right, they said. I am not pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice, they said. We are pro-life, but... They said all the conversations led back to Goliath. They led back to Roe versus Wade and Roe was the considered the law of the land. And it didn't matter that it really wasn't a law. Every time we went to the state legislature, we had to contend with Roe. So having overturned Roe in our lifetime, people is huge. And Mississippi is so glad to be a part of that. The Supreme Court decision in Dobbs ended nearly 50 years of precedent establishing a woman's right to privacy, including the choice of abortion. Anti-abortion advocates responded to skeptics by saying the court did not ban abortion, but instead returned the issue to state legislatures to decide. Liking Mississippi's effort to those of the biblical giant slaying David, Herring made it clear her efforts extend beyond Mississippi. And you know what? After David slayed Goliath... Okay, so in Mississippi, overturning Roe v. Wade, we have slain Goliath. Amen. Praise God. But we also have to go in and cut off his head 
But guess what happened after Goliath went down? They had to slay, they had to slay the Philistines. The Philistines have run to New Mexico. The Philistines are in all 50 states. And so now what we're, we're commissioned with by the Lord is to go state by state, kitchen table to kitchen table and end abortion completely in the United States in our lifetime. Democrats in Washington are attempting to codify the Roe precedent, and the Biden administration is protecting providers' clinical judgment when stabilizing pregnant patients in emergency situations, regardless of state law against the procedure. Coming up, the role a new coastal establishment plays in rehabilitating an endangered species of sea turtle. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. My wife and I both had to put off our uh, colonoscopies because of the virus. I think there's another alternative test, and is that right? Yeah, so colonoscopies, of course, are the test that's been used, and it's actually the best test for uh, catching early colon cancer or polyps that would predispose you to getting colon cancer. And uh, it's not pleasant to do the clean out. Uh, You're asleep when you have it done, so that part's not that big a deal. Relatively low risk for most of everybody, Uh, but that's the best thing to do because you can see those areas that are abnormal and you can do something about it, whether that's, you know, sort of clipping that polyp off send it out for for testing for cancer. So the earlier you catch those kinds of things, the better. If you can't do it, like right now with COVID-19, we're trying to decrease the amount of patients who are coming in and out. There are a couple of other things out there. One is called a FIT test. So this is an immunochemical test that looks at DNA uh, that we shed in our gut uh, for certain things. And uh, it's pretty useful when you combine it with some other things, it doesn't take the place of the colonoscopy, but it certainly is a test that you can get. It's pretty easy to do. The kit goes home with you. You put the stool on in that little uh, apparatus. You send it off through the mail, and the test result goes back to your doctor, and it's not invasive in any way. And when you combine that with also testing the stool for occult blood, so this is blood that you can't see, but it's small amounts of blood that we can test chemically in the stool. When you combine those things together, then you get a pretty good screening tool. It can at least provide you a little bit more protection on catching things early. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. We know you love MPB Think Radio to stay informed, but sometimes you need a little music to relax and unwind. MPB Music Radio has a variety of genres and is with you all the time on the MPB Public Media app, right on your mobile device. Bluetooth it in the car or pop in your earbuds and take a listen to MPB Music Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. And for Desiree Frazier, I'm Kevin Farrell. 
Baltimore Kemp's Ridley sea turtles are back in the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico after rehabbing at the Mississippi Aquarium in Gulfport. Since opening in August of 2020, the aquarium has rehabilitated and released 66 Kemp's Ridley sea turtles, 46 so far this year. Alexa Dulon is Vice President of Veterinary Services. She spoke to MPB's Michael Guidry about the journey the endangered turtles make from the cold autumn Atlantic to Mississippi's coastal beaches. During the winter time, when the water drops temperatures really quickly, they become um, stranded because they cold stun. They're reptiles. So the cold water dropping quickly affects their metabolism and they become a little bit incapacitated in the water, kind of just float there can get secondary infections like pneumonia or bone infections. And then they strand and people find them and bring them into rehabilitation centers up in the Northeast. It's really common. It happens every year, some years more than others. And then those centers get uh, pretty inundated with sea turtles, especially the smaller chemistry like the ones we get are about, about two pounds or so. And when they get large numbers of those sea turtles in the winter, they reach out to other facilities for help, and the Mississippi Aquarium is one of those facilities. And so what goes into rehabilitating these cold-stunned turtles? So when they get picked up by the stranding centers up in the northeast, they get they come into the centers. They get warmed up slowly, not too quickly. They get fluids and antibiotics and a quick triage, like just to make sure, you know, who needs what. Then when they get sent down here, they're in various stages of illness and various stages of needing help. And they're actually flown down here to Mississippi Aquarium by a company called Turtles Fly 2 that's a voluntary um, program. Pilots volunteer their time and planes to fly the turtles down. So they come to us in boxes with little heaters, and we unload them, and each turtle gets a full physical exam. So we take a blood sample. We do x-rays. We look in their eyes palpate them to see if we can feel any abnormalities. And then we come up with a treatment plan for every turtle. We put them in warmish water. Again, we don't want to warm them up too quickly. And then it starts the rehabilitation process. So after about a week or so, they start eating. And then we continue giving them antibiotics or antifungals or fluid therapy, depending on what they need. And we nurse them back to health slowly over a few months. And typically... Um, so they can't be released back into our waters until the water temperatures increase enough so that they won't restrand. So usually we're able to do a pretty big sea turtle release in the month of March because we'll have a large number of them ready for release, and that's about the time the water temperatures warm up enough that we can release them here on our beaches. So we have large releases, and we usually invite the public, put it on our Facebook or our aquarium website, because we want people to come out and see the turtles in person, because they're very cute and charismatic, and we want to teach people about this endangered species. How social are sea turtles, and uh, are they able to quickly adapt to those migratory patterns? Do they reform you know, pods, or do they kind of just go on their own and, and do their own thing? Um, so sea turtles are not usually social, despite what you might see in, in some of the movies. But um, they, yeah, they're not really social. They're more solitary animals. Sometimes groups of them gather, like during nesting season, they all come up on the beach at the same time to lay eggs and go back in. Those are species differences. But they're, they're solitary animals, so there's no problem releasing just one at a time. 
And sea turtles are very, very uh, just, they have an innate ability to navigate and go back to doing exactly what a sea turtle should be doing. So once they're out in the water, we obviously don't know every single individual what they do, but a lot of sea turtles just go back and they just act like a normal sea turtle. They start hunting for food, they swim, they go on their normal migratory patterns. So, um, yeah, there's no problem releasing one at a time. No problem at all. Uh, the the turtles that you rehabilitate and then release, uh, do you uh, do you tag them? Do you track them in any way to see um, you know progress or see if there's repeated um, uh, instances of of cold, cold stunning or is it just rehabilitate them, let them go, and uh, treat as needed uh, when 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 the new when another group comes down from New England? Yeah, it's it's a combination. So um, some sea turtles that are rehabilitated are too small to be tagged with um, tags that can physically track them. So like all the turtles we've rehabilitated are really small, too small for a satellite tag, which would be kind of what you need to follow their progress um, because you want to make sure that the tag is not too big for the turtle and doesn't impact its its, um, swimming capabilities or anything. Um, you can put flipper tags in them, like a little earring kind of thing or a microchip. Um, you have to have special permission for that. So sometimes we collaborate with uh, NOAA and they help us tag the turtles. We currently have a permit request in so that we're able to do those taggings ourselves. Um, but it's a combination of tagged and untagged. And if any of the turtles that we have rehabilitated that are tagged are released and they strand somewhere else, there's a big network of people who take care of sea turtles and they can find out by the flipper tag where the turtle was released from and what its history is so that we learn about more where they go to after they are released and rehabilitated. You mentioned that uh, these aren't endangered species. What are the factors that are are leading to that condition? Yeah, the Kimsterdleys are the most endangered sea turtle species. And um, many things affect their survival, but um, they're probably one of the more prevalent species that is found having interactions with um, fishing gear, so like uh, commercial fishing and then recreational fishing as well. Um, And then in addition, you know, just uh, climate change and decreased ability to find food, all of the different pressures that come with living out in the ocean are affecting the turtles. When I told my son I'd be talking to someone about sea turtles, he did want me to ask, what what predators do they have to worry uh, worry about? How old is your son? He's five. <laughs> okay, I have a five-year-old, too. <laughs> uh, five and a three. So the, um, for sea turtle species, it depends on the size of the turtle, um, what predators they have. But, like, the little tiny babies, when they hatch out of the egg and crawl down the beach and go to the ocean... The predators they have are like the ghost crabs on the beach or the birds that are on the beach. Um, And even before they hatch, sometimes like raccoons will dig up sea turtle nests. And then once they get to be a little bit bigger, they don't have a whole lot of predators. But um, sharks, you can sometimes see sea turtles with shark bites to their shell or they might lose a flipper uh, to a shark bite. So probably sharks are the biggest predators. And then, of course, like I said, people are one of the main things that affect their survival. Is there anything else about these Kemp Ridley sea turtles that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to articulate? We know that they're charismatic and cute. Is there anything else? (laughs) 
charismatic and cute, and we hope they're around for a very long time so that our children and grandchildren can see them, and they're important, um, a part of our ecosystem. So we'll continue doing everything we can to help protect them. Well, Alexa DeLon, Vice President of <laughs> Veterinary Services uh, with the Mississippi Aquarium, thank you so much for uh, teaching us a little bit oh. about these endangered Kim Shridley sea turtles. No problem. Anything I can do to help, I'm happy to. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.